Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 10 of Storytime for Weirdos. This episode continues the Becoming Saga from last episode. It is entitled, The Becoming, Day 3. I woke up to light streaming in the windows. I felt rested and relatively comfortable on the couch. Monica was lying at my feet, stretched out with her belly up. I carefully got up without kicking her and used the bathroom. The toilet bowl had water in it, and it flushed, but the reservoir did not refill. I rummaged through the kitchen. There was some ground coffee and a box of crackers, but not much else to eat. I got an apple from my backpack and ate a few crackers. I put some cat food in a bowl for Monica. Good morning, said Sarah, as she emerged from the bedroom. I offered her some crackers and the last apple from my backpack. She took the apple and sat on the kitchen stool. How do you sleep, I asked. Actually, I sort of don't, she replied. What, I asked. I was exhausted. No, I lay down and then I go into this sort of trance. I'm not really asleep. I'm aware of my surroundings. About halfway through the night, I get up feeling well-rested. She seemed embarrassed as she told me this. You haven't always been this way, right? It's just since, you know, I asked. Yes, it's only in the last two days. I used to love to sleep, she said, almost a little sad. We were interrupted by a knock on the door. I opened it with the staff in my hand. A woman stood on the other side in sweatpants and hoodie. She was carrying a bucket of water. Hello. Jen told me you two were here. I'm Mary, and I have some water and clean clothes for you, she said with a smile. I gestured for her to come in, and we introduced ourselves. You're not the first refugees we've had, but Jen said you were from the city, she asked, raising her eyebrows at me. I told her briefly what had happened in the city as Sarah took the bucket of water into the bathroom. What happened here, I asked. Oh, it was terrible. Not as bad as fire-breathing monsters, but we all woke up with no power and a gang of green men was going house to house killing people. Colonel Friedman was having none of it and organized a band to hunt them down and secure the town. He and Prospero came up with the idea of building a wall around the town to keep out monsters. That's the main job right now, she replied. Who's Prospero, I asked. I met the colonel, but I haven't met him. Oh, you probably have. Tall, blonde man. He plays the guitar beautifully, she said with a dreamy look in her eye. I thought back to the night before. The man who played the guitar by the fire had been blonde. That must be Prospero. Sarah emerged from the bathroom in clean jeans and a white blouse. Her ears poked out of her still damp hair. I left you some water, she said. There's soap in the shower. I grabbed the clothes that Mary had brought, children's jeans and a button-down shirt, along with socks, underwear, and, and headed into the bathroom. Once I was there, I stripped off the dirty clothes, stood on the toilet, and looked in the mirror. My hair was a mess, with long patches on the sides and back, with thick stubble filling out the top. My beard was growing in evenly, but thick. I found a pair of scissors and a safety razor in the medicine cabinet and trimmed the side and back of my hair. I wet and soaped my face and neck and shaped the beard and back of my head a little bit. 
and then I wash the rest of myself, pouring the last of the water over my head while standing in the shower. I shivered as I quickly dried myself with a threadbare towel hanging from a hook. The water hadn't been warm. I dressed and climbed onto the toilet to look at myself again. My nose and mouth dominated my face. I'd never considered myself handsome, but my self-esteem really took hit from this distortion of my features. Still, the return of hair to my head and the total lack of gray hair was welcome. Look on the bright side, I guess. I wasn't green and crazy. In the living room, Sarah was reading an old newspaper and Mary was rummaging through the kitchen. Monica sat on the windowsill, washing herself. I approached her and reached up to scratch her ears. Do you want to stay here or go with me today? I asked her. She jumped to the floor, paused as if thinking, and said, I'll go with you. Too many strangers. You might need me. Okay, then. Are you two ready to go? I asked Sarah and Mary. Certainly, Mary replied. Follow me. We followed her out of the building and across the lawn. Next door to the apartment building was a grocery store. The parking lot was bustling with people. At one end, there was a stack of freshly cut trees. People were cutting the branches from them and hauling the trunks off with assembly line efficiency. The portion of the lot closest to us had a line of foodstuffs neatly stacked along one end. People were arriving with bags full of food. Other people were emptying the bags, and still another group of people were taking inventory of the stacks. Colonel, I'm here with the new recruits, said Mary to Emmett Friedman, who stood at the center of the bustle, giving orders, answering questions, and occasionally chopping wood. As we waited for him to acknowledge us, he was in the middle of a conversation when we arrived. I took a closer look at him. An African-American man, I guess in his mid-fifties, hit a grain high and tight haircut and a distinct military bearing. He was in good shape, but wasn't particularly imposing. Thanks, Mary, Emmett said, turning to us. Neither of you look like you'll be much help with the palisade. I'll pair you with a local. Scott, you go with Jen, and Sarah, I'll pair you with Marcus. He gestured to Jen, our young guide from last night, and a younger boy, maybe ten years old. They'd just returned with bags full of food. You'll be salvaging food from abandoned houses and getting a sense of what is in each house. The kids will show you how it's done. Emmett continued, Any questions? And no, Mr. Friedman, I replied. He nodded to me and to Sarah and turned to Mary. I walked over to Jen and waved at her. Hey, we're going to be partners on food salvage. Emmett said you'd tell me how to do it, I said. She smiled at me. Cool, there's a bag for the food, she said, handing me a large canvas sack. It's really easy. We only go into the homes without a sock on the door. That's the code. If you live there, put a sock on the door. Sometimes the doors are locked, but usually they're open. We go through the house and grab anything that you can eat. I write down other stuff I see in my notebook. Clothes, blankets, candles, pots and pans, that kind of stuff. I followed her out of the parking lot and down one of the residential streets. We tie a ribbon around the doorknob once we've taken the food, she said, pointing to a door with a ribbon. We came to a house without a sock on the doorknob and climbed the steps to the door. She knocked. Just in case, she said to me as she turned the knob, the door opened and we entered the home. At first, it felt larcenous to rummage through homes taking food and noting other objects of value, but by the third home, we fell into a rhythm. Jen wasn't that talkative and very focused on the task at hand. 
My mind wandered, and I started working on jokes and anecdotes about the last few days. I had been a comedian for the past 20 years, and figuring out jokes was therapeutic. Around midday, we returned to the parking lot to drop off our bags of food. The scene had changed. Everyone had paused for lunch. Rolls with wedges of cheese were distributed, and cups of water were lined up on a table. I asked Jen if I could get a pad of paper and something to write with. She disappeared briefly and returned with a pen and paper. I sat on the ground, writing out the jokes I'd thought of and eating my lunch. I was sharing some cheese with Monica as Mary approached. Mr. Michaels, she said to me, I thought you'd like to meet some others who'd uh, also experienced a uh, transition. She stuttered out the last bit as if unsure of herself. I stood up and saw that behind her was a person around my height. Hello, my name's Floyd Fairweather, said the small man, extending his hand to me. I shook it and introduced myself. I'll leave you two to chat, said Mary, seemingly pleased with herself. There's about a dozen of us. Woke up like this, he said, eyeing me. Oh, I replied, discomforted. His features were not like mine. They were all proportional, and his ears were small and round. You're not like us, though, he said, seeming disappointed. No, I guess not. Same experience, though, right? Fever dreams, funny feeling the night before, all that, I asked. Yeah, that's right, same experience, different outcome. Nice to meet you, though. I need to get back to work, he said, and left. I watched him walk away, feeling like I'd failed. Don't mind him. I jumped as Jen spoke. What? I asked. Floyd and the rest of the little people, hobbits, halflings, or whatever you want to call them. They're nice enough, but they've been weird and clicky for the last two days. Always whispering together and staring at anyone who gets too close. They smile and make nice, but they're thick as thieves, as my father would say. Shaking off a lingering disappointment, I turned to her and asked, You done with lunch? Want to get back to raiding? Sure, she replied. The houses started to blur together as the afternoon wore on. The doors were locked on one of the homes, and Jen pulled out a pair of tools and picked the lock. At my questioning look, she explained that their father was a locksmith. The sun was starting to set as we approached the final home for the day. The doors were locked for this one, too, and Jen set about picking the locks. As the door opened, a strange smell wafted out. It reminded me of an animal pen, but it was cut with a putrid smell of rot. Monica arched her back and let out a hiss. Danger, she said, ears pinned back and her fur standing on end. Monica, you stay here and keep an eye out, I said to her. As Jen and I walked in, I dropped the bag and gripped my staff with both hands. I don't like this, I said, as we crept to the living room towards the kitchen. As we turned the corner into the kitchen, Jen gasped. A human-sized shape hung in front of the kitchen sink. Thick white strands secured it to the floor and ceiling. The counters and walls were festooned with what looked like cobwebs. Get out, I shouted, backing up and scanning the kitchen for movement. Jen turned to run, and a shape dropped from the ceiling onto her. She crouched down and let out a scream. I wound up the staff like a baseball bat and struck the creature clinging to her back. It flew off with an angry chitter, landing on the living room. There I got a clear view of it. A spider the size of a cocker spaniel reared on its hind legs and lunged at me. I barely stopped its charge with my staff, its mandibles an inch from my face. I grunted as 
dropped back down on all eight legs, and I took a swipe at it with my staff. It skittered out of the way. A projectile flew from the left and behind me, hitting the spider in the face with a dull, wet thunk. It let out a hiss and lunged toward the source of the projectile. As it moved past me, I speared its midsection with the butt of my staff. I skewered the thing right through the middle. A viscous black liquid splattered out from the wound, and the spider's legs scrambled on the floor as it let out a high-pitched whine. I pulled my staff free and backed away from it, ready to strike again. It twitched, but didn't make any more threatening moves. Jen stood against the kitchen table behind me with a slingshot in one hand and a golf ball-sized hunk of metal in the other. Are you okay? I asked. I think it bit me, she said. Let's get out of here and get some help, I said, trying to walk and look everywhere at once. We rushed out the door and down the steps. Jen stopped in the street, bent over, and made retching sounds. Her face was pale as she sat down on the curb. I don't think I can walk. I feel like lightheaded. Get help, she croaked. She slumped down on the pavement. Help, I yelled. Help me. I tried to lift her, but I was too small. The leverage was poor. I noticed an emergency bell that the locals carried wrapped in a handkerchief and pinned to her backpack. I grabbed it and rang it hard. Help, I yelled. I checked her pulse. I was able to find it, but her skin was cold. I kept ringing the bell. Two people rounded the corner at a run. They saw me and dashed over. One was a tall, grim-faced Asian man, and the other was a beautiful African-American woman with braided hair. What happened, the woman asked. She was bit by the... A spider the size of a turkey, I replied. Okay, I think I can help, the woman said, closing her eyes and placing her hand on Jen's chest. She whispered something I couldn't make out. Seconds passed. With the woman kneeling there whispering, I looked at my hands and they were shaking and my legs felt weak. Suddenly, a warm yellow glow spread from one woman's hand on Jen's chest and all over her body. It was gone in the next instant and I questioned if it had been a trick of the light. Let's see if we can make her more comfortable, the woman said, taking off a coat and folding it under Jen's head. Are you all right? She asked, turning to me. Yeah, I'm I'm fine, I think, I replied. What happened to the spider, the man asked. I, we killed it, I said. I think there was only one. It was in that house, I said, pointing to the home. Jen suddenly gasped and sat up, which made me jump. Hey, sweetie, the woman said gently. How are you feeling? Okay, a little weak. Jen replied, ah, my shoulder, it bit me. I could see a lump on her shoulder blade in the fading light. We'll have the doctor look at it. Can you walk? She asked. Yeah, I think so, Jen replied. She climbed to her feet and we started making our way down the street toward the center of town. That was amazing, I said to the woman. I'm Scott, by the way. Thanks for saving her. How did you do that? I'm Vanessa and I call what I did the son's blessing. She replied as she walked. On Monday morning, I heard whispers from the sun, and they told me how to do things like that. She was serene as she said this. Whispers from the sun? I asked, confused. I know how it sounds, but that's the only way I can explain it, she said. There are others around town who heard the same whisper. Julie Kastner, John Phillips, both describe it as the sun talking to them. Was it like a fever dream, I asked? No, it's not like what the little people and elves talk about. What you experience, she asked. I nodded. I didn't change, but I learned from the sun. It wanted me to help others. 
It can heal a wound, help with poison or illness, and purify food and water, among other things. She paused, looking around. It's getting dark. We should have some light. I hadn't noticed. I was able to see relatively well. I thought she would light a torch. Instead, she held up a club that had been tied to her belt and again whispered the words I couldn't understand. The end of the club started glowing softly. The amazement on my face must have been something to see. Jen giggled, and even Vanessa's grim-faced companion smirked. We continued walking in silence. I processed the events of the last hour. We arrived at the park, where there was a bonfire burning like the night before. I'm going to take Jen to see the doctor, Vanessa said. You and Peter tell the colonel what happened. She nodded to her companion as she said this, took Jen by the arm, and led her into a crowd of people gathering on the lawn. Peter and I approached the bonfire where Emmett was speaking to the blonde man with a guitar, Prospero. They looked up as we approached. You look like you just saw a ghost, said Emmett with a smile. It's been quite a day, I paused. Not a fire-breathing monsters destroying the city kind of day, but still, you're going to want to hear this. I proceeded to tell them the story. Several people nearby stopped to listen as I recounted the fight with the spider. When I was finished, Emmett nodded and said, Peter, come with me. I want to spread the word to avoid this house, and we'll organize a group to clean the place out tomorrow morning. Mr. Michaels, you have some food. Enjoy the fire. I was given a bowl of stew from one of several pots being warmed by the fire and sat down on the lawn. People sat in small groups, eating and talking. Occasionally, someone would leave one group and go to another. The man, I assumed was Prospero, approached me. You spin quite a yarn, my friend, he said. Do you mind if I sit? I gestured next to me to indicate that he was welcome. Tell me, what was your occupation before all of this, he asked. I was a, I am a comedian, I replied. Comedian, so you tell jokes and stories. You made money doing this, he asked. Yes, I did it for 20 years. I wrote for television and plays and performed at the clubs in the city, I replied. Wonderful. Would you entertain us this evening? Everyone could use a laugh, I'm sure, he said. I shrugged as I placed some cat food in my empty bowl for Monica. Sure, I've got some new material I want to work out. Prospero jumped to his feet and dressed the people sitting on the lawn. My friends, we have a very special guest tonight. A new face here in Hastings Hudson. A very funny man, Mr. Scott Michaels. He bowed with a flourish as he introduced me. I stood in front of the bonfire and began my set. Thank you, thank you. It's good to be here. As some of you may have heard, New York City was destroyed by fire-breathing monsters. Finally, a real reason for New Yorkers to walk so damn fast. There was a beat, and then a gentle laugh rippled through the audience. Comedy is a tough profession, and everyone doing it today is standing on the shoulders of giants, which I really appreciate because ever since Monday, I had to stand on the shoulders of giants just to reach the sink. This also got a laugh, so my new stuff was working, and these people needed the release. I moved on to my standard material and did about 15 minutes. You've been a wonderful audience, and I'm not just saying that because you saved me from being eaten by trolls. Thank you very much. I waved as they clapped, and I stepped out of the light of the fire. Mary was nearby and handed me a cup of water. That was very good, Mr. Michael, she said, still chuckling. I needed the laugh. Mary, may I have a minute with Scott, said Prospero, appearing at my side. 
Oh, yes, certainly, Prospero. But only if you play your guitar for us tonight, said Mary, blushing. Of course, I, I'll play in a moment, he said. Mary wandered off, and Prospero turned to me. You have a talent, Mr. Michaels, he said. Well, maybe, I replied, but comedy is more of a craft, one that I've worked very hard at. No, I'm not talking about that, just about that. I'm referring to the magic of your voice, the power of your spoken word, he said with an intensity that disturbed me. I don't know what you're talking about, I said. Come now. Certainly. Since Monday, you've noticed some strange occurrences associated with things you've said. Music playing in response to your words, people behaving like something you said physically struck them or made them like you or trust you. He was staring into my eyes now. I recalled the music playing in the children's store and the reaction of Sarah's green assailant to my insults. Yes, now that you mention it, I've noticed some odd things, I said slowly. Good, I thought as much. I have a proposal for you. Tomorrow morning, come see me at the public library. I can teach you how to get the most out of your new talents. Are you interested? He asked. Sure, I'd, I'd like that, I think, I replied. Excellent. Now excuse me while I give the people their nightly serenade. He unslung the guitar off his back and walked in the light of the bonfire. Monica rubbed herself on my shins and I reached down to scratch her ears. Careful with that one. There's something about him, she said, pinning your ears back and lashing her tail. I'll be cautious, I said. Shall we go back to Hudson Terrace and sleep? Good idea, she replied. We made our way through the lawn, where the crowd of people was starting to thin out, across the street, through the parking lot, into the apartment building. It took me a little while to remember which apartment we'd stayed in, but I found it. As we walked, I marveled that I was able to see relatively clearly in the dark. Everything was washed out, like a black and white movie, but I had no problem navigating relatively unfamiliar ground. I opened the door to the apartment to find Sarah sitting in the chair in the candlelight. Hello, I said. How was your day? Oh, hello, she said with a start. It was all right. How was yours? I recounted the events of the day. When I described the feats Vanessa had performed, she nodded. Marcus, the boy I was partnered with, told me about that. His mother apparently has similar abilities, she said. I kept Prospero's offer to teach me to myself, but I did tell her that I'd be helping him at the library the next day. Well, I'm going to be on one of the night patrols tonight. I better get some sleep or whatever. I'll try not to wake you up when I go out, she said as she headed for the bedroom. I found an extra pair of sheets and a pillow in the closet. They're on the sofa for use, she said, and closed the door. I spread out the bedding and changed into one of my extra t-shirts and a different pair of underwear. I blew out the candle and slipped into bed. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Storytime for Weirdos, a bi-weekly podcast with new episodes posted on the first and third Saturday of every month.